0: You are now tuned in to the Gifted Gab. Alright, we're back on another episode of the Gifted Gab, and I've got a special, special, extra special guest today. Mr. David Shepard, the Honorable, MLA for Edmonton City Center, and the official opposition and health critic for the NDP. How you doing, David? Welcome. I'm
1: doing good. Thanks for having me
0: on. Absolutely, true. welcome. Just to uh, get a little closer to the mic, absolutely. You can yeah. do. You know, we got to get that. You're one of our important voices. You know, yeah. We, gotta, we need that.
1: I'll, I'll speak up. I'll project. <laughs>
0: <laughs> welcome, man. You know, we did. Um, I think this this episode was a long time coming. Um, we just I just bumped into uh, at one of these community events, and I said, you know what, David's got a lot to say. He's a person of the people. He's one of us, and I think his voice is important to get him on the Gifted Gap, you know, and I'm just glad to have you on here. Thank you.
1: Hey, my pleasure. Anytime.
0: You know, we did did our background. We did our homework. All right. And uh, we discovered that you yourself have a background in the arts. You know, talk about that a little bit, you know.
1: Yeah. No, uh, I started out. uh, My first degree was in music. So I went through the music program at McEwen University. It was a community college back then. But no, I, I took piano lessons at the time I was really young. Uh, Royal Conservatory, didn't really like it, wasn't very good at it. Uh, about 12, 13 years old, had a teacher that sort of uh, talked my parents into taking me out of classical and letting her teach me how to play by ear. Hmm. And that, like, light bulb went off. Went, oh, I can make my own music. I can do things with it. So that sort of turned on that creative impulse for me. And then that was it. So, and that was got, it. yeah, got just got into playing, writing my own music, got a keyboard, taught myself to program and sequence. <laughs> and so, yeah, went through the music program at McEwen, uh, did a performance major, went back later and did a second major in recording and live sound, and probably spent about a dozen years kicking around the amateur music scene.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I don't think many people know that about you, you know? Yeah. That, <laughs> how do you think it's uh, helped you with your, your career now in politics?
1: Oh, it's helped me hugely. Right. See, the thing is, you know... Creativity is incredibly important in a lot of different areas, right? When you when you learn an art, and particularly when you learn improvisational art, right? Mm-hmm. You learn how to sort of create on the fly, how to come up with your own ideas, how to develop them, then that's critical thinking skills, right? That's ability to think outside the box, to find new paths, pursue them, kind of. So it, it worked really well for my brain. Like when I was a kid, I loved playing with Lego. Because <laughs> I just got, it's just a box of possibility, right? So I got a bunch of pieces, what can I do with this? And for me with music, it was kind of the same thing. And so when I went to study at McEwen, it was a jazz program, mm-hmm. and it made sense to me. They kind of they give you a melody line and some chords, and they say, make something,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So there's other, other people in my class, and they were struggling with that, because they'd grown up in classical, and classical, you play what's on the page, mm-hmm right? It tells you how loud to play and how fast to play. I mean, if you get really good, you get, you learn how to sort of improvise and build on that. You can get really artistically creative, but it's, it's not that inherently. So, but for me, I'd already been doing that. So it just made sense. It's like, okay, so I got to find a really interesting way to get into this song an introduction, and then a cool way to sort of frame it and style to put it in. And then you have your improv and solo, and then you've got to find an interesting way to get out. So it's taught me a lot, about how you connect with people. How do you hook people on an idea? How do you hold their attention, right? How do you communicate? And so those are things that are used in politics all the time. Right. Very similar thing. Mm -hmm. What's your theme? Okay, What's an interesting way to present that? How do you hook people in to listen to your idea? How do you present that in an engaging way? The ability to work on something on the fly to sort of take a small theme, be able to elaborate on it. Well, hey, I do that on the floor of the legislature all the time. Do that when I'm sitting in an interview or a podcast or do that when I'm out talking with people on the doorstep. So I use a lot of the skill set that I built in music, and, and that doesn't even get into stuff like, you know, playing in groups, playing in ensembles. All of a sudden, you've got to do all those things with a group of other people. So you've got to be heads up, sort of see what other people are doing, feel where they're going, be able to tie what you're doing in with what they're doing, work together collectively. Plus, in the music scene, of course, it's a lot of hustle. You want to survive. You've got to figure out how to get around. You've got to make connections. You've got to network. You've got to get comfortable on stage. You've got to build an audience.
0: That's beautiful. I think that people undermine the importance of arts and how critical it is to our development
1: when we want to when we want to uh, pursue
0: other yeah. other endeavors, right? You
1: know, I think we underrate the importance of arts and education a lot. You know, you'll you'll hear some folks and they will really talk down, you know, uh, degrees in the humanities. So to say, well, hey, what are you going to do with that? That's not going to get you a job. You know. So you study history. What are you going to do with that? you know? Or you, you study English or these things. But the thing is, those things are core to being able to build an agile mind. Absolutely. To build up critical thinking skills. The ability to you know, clearly communicate what you want to say. Process ideas, put them in a format that people understand. To be able to take information in, complex information, distill it down. That's all part of arts, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. The art of communication, I, I think in our modern society, communication is one of the most important oh. skill sets anyone needs to have, whether you're in business, hey, whether you're working in construction, anywhere. Your ability to clearly get your ideas across to others and to clearly understand what other people are saying to you.
0: very bedrock. Important. It's critical. It's very critical. Yeah, and I and think,
1: arts education
0: is a big part of that. Yeah, and it's it's amazing to see that you're one of those you know prodigies. You took that and you applied it to your job now, I think, you know, I also background in arts, um, small, small, small stint in music, but then I went on to study sociology and stuff Mm. like that. But, you know, like you said, it's very undermined and very underappreciated, undervalued in our society Mm -hmm. because it does develop that critical thinking. And as we're seeing today, there's a lot of lack of critical thinking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You you, you could say that certainly in the political realm. Yeah, I I certainly see that. You know, it's so,
0: you know, you have, you know, this, this this responsibility I feel like sometimes. Maybe some people know, some people don't, but you know, as a black man, you know, when we see you and you're representing yeah. minorities and voice BIPOC voices, you know, I think that people wanna know that they're being heard, their problems are also being heard. And as someone that has been in service for the community almost a decade, mm. um, You've done a lot of groundwork for those those voices. Bigotry right now is being passed a lot as mm. opinions, as you see in in, in this modern discourse. Yeah. Um, what do you have to say for those minorities that may are may be losing faith in our system and, and are having a hard time, you know, believing that change is on the horizon?
1: I guess the first thing I would say is I understand, right? I I get it. I know that the experiences that you are having are real. This stuff happens, right? There is overt racism, and we're seeing a rising amount of that. There is systemic racism. There are microaggressions. These are real things that people experience. And so to those folks who are feeling these frustrations with the system, I want to affirm that your feelings are valid. You know, there are a lot of reasons to be frustrated with the, with the systems that govern our lives. Because we've got to remember that these systems were built in times when racism was much more embedded, was factually assumed in society. It was the default standard. So a lot of these systems were born in and built in those times, and they still carry the remnants of that. So when people are frustrated and they feel that, you know, the justice system is not adequately set up, to support people who are experiencing racism, bigotry—they're absolutely right, because it wasn't built for that. Mm-hmm. When they feel that the economic system, you know, shuts out people of color, you know, indigenous, black, and other people of color, have a harder time—it's true, because these systems were built to exclude them historically.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we've made a lot of growth. Let's, let's be clear—we we have moved ahead, we have gained a lot of ground, but there still are deep set issues that need to be addressed. So I think. Unfortunately, you know, uh, racialized communities. A lot of times, they can be gaslit. Yeah, people will deny the reality of what is happening, and we are seeing that particularly now. As we have seen some of these shifts, some of these growths in society, some of the advancements that we've made on so many fronts, we've now got a dedicated group of folks who want to roll that back. Right, there are folks who feel afraid that they are losing power, that they are losing privilege, that they are losing place in society, and they want to get in the way of further progress on us being able to move ahead on these things. So we've got real work to do. So, I mean, one of those issues, you know, is around systemic racism in these systems. So one of the things that I had, to, I had the privilege to do this year was introduce a private members bill, uh, Bill 204, the Anti-Racism
0: Act. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. So
1: that was focused on specifically addressing systemic racism within all areas of provincial government policy. Mm-hmm. So back in 2020, you know, we had the, the murder of George Floyd. Yeah, And we get these moments you know, where suddenly these things are thrust into the public consciousness in a way that nobody can ignore. Mm-hmm. And that was one. Yeah. You remember that. Right? Absolutely. And so we had uh, some significant rallies. And I was asked to speak at a rally here in Edmonton. I think one of the biggest rallies that's ever been held on the Alberta legislature ground. Yeah, around. I was there. 15,000 yeah. people. It was massive. So mm-hmm. I was asked to speak there. And so before I did, I sat down with, you know, uh, with, with Rachel Notley, uh, the leader of the, uh, the opposition, the Alberta NDP, and I said, what are we willing to put on the table? because you know, it's not enough to just go out and give words. We need to be able to take action. And so she agreed, and she said, what we will do is we will set up a process to sit down and listen to black Albertans and other racialized Albertans, indigenous Albertans, other people of color, and hear their concerns and look at what real action we can take. So that led to a process. It was a, it was several months long where we held a series of consultations with folks online. Of course, it was in the midst of the pandemic, mm-hmm. but we talked about you know uh, what are the what are the issues with systemic racism in healthcare, education, the economic system, the justice system, social supports, and the democratic system. And we took what we heard and we put out a report. You can find it at albertasfuture.ca. It's called Your Future, Your Voice. What we heard from Albertans about racism and being anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Lays it all out. But one thing that showed up in every single category was a need to collect race-based data. Absolutely. Because what we're talking about here, when we talk about people's experience of these systems, their frustrations, them getting gaslit, the problem is that we don't have the data to back it up because we don't measure it. Mm -hmm. So why do we get action on carding? We got action on carding, or at least it came to the public attention, and that led to action in a couple of different provinces because we had the numbers. That is very important in this day and age. Absolutely. Yeah. It, dri- it drives action and it drives change, and it drives accountability. Yeah. So my bill, the Anti-Racism Act, basically did a couple things. It would, it would have set up an anti-racism office headed by an anti-racism commissioner that anti-racism commissioner would have led a process of consultation with indigenous communities, with black communities, with other racialized communities across the province to develop a really robust set of data standards. Mm-hmm. So basically, how is how would data be collected? How would it be controlled? How would it be managed to make sure that we are protecting communities? Because I get it, right? Data, government systems have been used against racialized Absolutely. communities. Absolutely. So we need to build trust. So there's a whole process set up for that consultation to build that and put that in place. Once that was in place... Then the anti-racism commissioner would work with every area of government to begin the collection of race-based data. So in healthcare, you know, they ask you all kinds of questions: How old are you? You know, uh, what gender do you identify as? What's your history? That sort of thing. Add one more box in mm-hmm. there, so it let's us track. You know, uh, well, okay, well, individuals of African descent, individuals who are in- indigenous, et cetera, so that we can then begin to pinpoint where are the problems in the system. Mm-hmm. So if we notice then that for indigenous people, and we do measure some of this stuff, right, so there's a higher rate of deaths at births. Absolutely, yeah. Then we know there's a problem. we got to dig in and we got to fix that. Mm-hmm. You know, if we look at it and we say, well, there's far more black men being arrested than anyone else and traffic stops, then we know, okay, there's a problem. We need to fix it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it would have started that process. And then basically the anti-racism commissioner works with folks and sort of says, okay, you've identified a problem here. So here's my recommendations on how you can start to address that, or steps that we can begin to take. Mm.
0: If you don't know, you can't change anything, right? Absolutely. If you know the information, you have it in front of you, then you can make informed decisions on how to bring about informed and real change, right? And
1: you're able to have accountability. Absolutely. You can say, here's the problem. It's here in the numbers. And let's be clear, you know, that isn't accusing any individual of being racist, Mm -hmm. right? So we identify a problem in the justice system. I'm not saying any cops are racist, or any judges, or any lawyers, Mm -hmm. It's just saying the system, the way it's set up, has an outcome that has a racist impact. Mm-hmm. So we need to figure out why that is and change that system to change that outcome.
0: And you need data and information and all of that to do that. Without Absolutely. that, it's you're aiming in
1: the dark, yeah. right? So unfortunately, the the bill was not accepted by the uh, by the, the current government, the UCP, uh, the felt it was too much, too ambitious for a private member from the opposition to put forward. They said, nah, we're, we're good, we got this, we're going to put out our own plan. And what they've done is they, a few months later, they put out, quietly, a sort of very short anti-racism plan, largely reannouncing a lot of things they've done before and on race-based data. They said, well, we'll form a committee to look at this over the course of three years and think about how we might be able to eventually implement
0: this. The time is of the essence, though. So, yeah, know, yeah,
1: kicking it down the road.
0: We're trying, right? You know, there's also a trend that we're seeing, right? Um, especially since the pandemic where people and communities are embarking on entrepreneurial quests, Mm you know, you know, with the pandemic, we've been hearing about the great Resignation. We've been looking at, you know, unemployment is here and, and jobs are also vacant, right? What initiatives have been discussed just to guide, you know, new entrepreneurs through these journeys and, um, transition this kind of economy for small businesses and, and sole proprietors?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I know it's especially true for, you know, uh, indigenous, black, other people of color. A lot of them go into entrepreneurship, in part, because of what we we're just talking about, mm-hmm. systems,
0: not right, us right, exclude yeah. them,
1: yeah. right? How they have a harder time getting jobs, they have a harder time getting opportunities. And so in a lot of cases, hey, there's a lot more freedom in starting a business for yourself. You have control. You can protect yourself, you can look after your family. So I recognize that's really important, and of course, hey, Alberta is known for being a very entrepreneurial province. Absolutely, right? Folks like to have an idea, get things done, and Edmonton, in particular, I think, Mm -hmm. is a great city for that. Right? Absolutely, this is a city where you have an idea. There's a lot of folks that will step up, help you, offer advice. There's a great community you can tap into. You can build things here. So government absolutely has a role to play in that. So first of all, you don't want government to get in the way. Now, I get it. That's, that's a big conservative talking point. might sound strange coming <laughs> from somebody with the NDP. But we recognize, right, that there are real challenges in starting a business, and you want to make that accessible. Know, easier and accessible for people to get in the door. It doesn't mean we have to undermine labor laws. We don't have to make it harder for workers or put them in danger or take away their rights. There's other things we can do to support businesses to make the environment Better for them to be able to operate. So one of the things we did when we were in government is that we cut the small business tax from three percent to two percent. So we lowered that again, let entrepreneurs keep more of that dollars in their pocket. Of course, I get it. a lot of entrepreneurs though. It <laughs> takes a while to get to the point where you're making the profits <laughs> that you get taxed on. <laughs> takes time. So it's other things we got to do. So access to capital is a big one, and again, for racialized communities in particular. That is a real issue. I remember there was a survey done by uh, by a coalition within the Senate of black senators, and they sort of looked at it and said, hey, you know, black entrepreneurs, they said, yeah, they have a much harder time getting access to capital. It's one of their biggest concerns. You know, very small percentage of black entrepreneurs, I think it might have been around 30 percent, that said, I'm pretty confident that if I went to my bank today, I could get 10,000 bucks. That's crazy. So it is. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things we need to do is work on that. It's one of the things that did come up in our consultations that we've got in our report, Your Future, Your Voice, is working with financial institutions. Alberta here, we've got an advantage. We've got a bank, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Alberta Treasury Branch. Yep. Operated out of the government of Alberta. So, you know, work with groups like that to get help uh, racialized entrepreneurs get more access to capital. And so we've seen some good work on that. I know uh, ATB has opened entrepreneur centers and stuff like that across mm-hmm. the province to sort of help people give access, help them understand. Uh, one of the other things that we need to look at is specifically, I guess, helping people understand the landscape. Because, you know, we were talking about that earlier. You sort of, I mean, a lot of folks go into entrepreneurship or stuff because they, they're the kind of people that like to figure things out themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, you know, if you've got a little bit of mentorship there, if mm-hmm. you've got some folks who can sort of tell you the landscape, provide information, that makes a big difference too. Mm-hmm. So when we were in government uh, around 2017, I had a guy come to me, uh, Jean-Jacques Médicaro, mm-hmm. uh, who works for uh, Business Link, organization oh, yeah. in the province yeah. that supports entrepreneurs. So he himself was an immigrant to Canada. right? Wow. Came here, uh, Ugandan community. So he educated himself in business, operated a business, sort of built his way up, went to work for Business Link. And he came to me and so said, we had this pilot program that we ran, under the PC government, mm-hmm. to support immigrant entrepreneurs, provide them with training, provide materials in different languages, and provide them with mentorship, and he mm-hmm. wanted to get it going again. So I was able to flag that to our minister. We got that up, so we provided the funding, and that program is back up and running today. Nice. Immigrant entrepreneurship, uh, the immigrant entrepreneur training program through Business link.
0: Nice, Business so the, yeah.
1: So those kinds of supports are really important too. And uh, the other thing that we don't think about sometimes, because we get caught up when we're talking about and this is a lot, okay, low taxes, you know, low regulation, make the environment. But the fact is, having strong public services
0: mm-hmm.
1: makes a big difference for someone's ability to operate a business. Absolutely. You're, you have family, right? You have young children. You want to operate a business? You're going to need childcare. Mm-hmm. You're going to need that support. Yeah. Right. So, having a good, strong childcare program, we invested, we created $25 a day childcare. It was a pilot program, working on expanding it. Current government ended it, but now they, at least with, with the leadership of the federal government, we're working towards that. That's essential. Mm-hmm. You know, having a good education system, good health care system, essential. right? You know, even in stuff like health care, the expansion now that the federal government is working on of a pharma care program, a dental program, those are big things.
0: Absolutely. Especially right? for entrepreneurs, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Because entrepreneurs, you do not have coverage. You don't have coverage, yeah. right? So when we say that your access to some of these essential pieces of health care are going to depend on where you work and who you work for. That destabilizes people's ability to innovate an idea, Mm -hmm. to create a business, to build something up. So a stronger social safety net, Mm -hmm. you know, providing that stability is a big thing. Uh, One of the other things that we've we've proposed is we want to bring back the STEP program, Mm -hmm. Student Temporary Employment Mm -hmm. Program. Mm -hmm. And what that does is that provides a subsidy to employers to hire students to work in their business. Which is amazing. So, yeah, yeah, so businesses get to get to hire workers at a lower rate right the, the wage is subsidized so these students are still making a good wage but the business is only paying part of it so they get access to uh, affordable labor these students in the meantime get real job experience, experience. right yeah. and opportunities to get out there in the market so that was a program we brought back it had been canceled by the, the pcs we brought it back UCP government ended it. We've committed we're going to bring it back, and we're, going to, and we're going to put even more investment into it to support students, support small businesses.
0: We've got to invest in the youth, right? Yeah. I mean, they're the future of our, of our province, they're the future of our country.
1: Absolutely. Right? And that's where they're getting their experience, their ideas to maybe start their business someday. Absolutely. The other thing that I've just mentioned sort of on businesses and entrepreneurs is in Alberta, there is a huge startup culture. Yes. So in is. tech and innovation, but hey, startup Also goes to a lot of different things. It's it's, it's a new kind of mentality, new approach. So we work to bring some things in to make that easier for folks to get started in those fields. So things like the Alberta Investor Tax Credit. Mm -hmm. So somebody invests in your business, then they get a tax credit back. Hmm. Every other province in Canada pretty much has this. And they've had it for some time. Alberta delayed for a very long time. We brought that in to support folks in tech and innovation to be able to attract investment. We brought in something called the Interactive Digital Media Tax Credit. Mm-hmm. which basically, if you know, uh, digital digital media, right? Big these days, Very video big. game companies, mm-hmm. folks creating online content, all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff like that. So a lot of other provinces have had that in place. It's a credit as, that gets provided for folks when they create new jobs in their business. Mm-hmm. So we brought that into Alberta, and hey, right in my own constituency, Edmonton downtown, right? So folks like BioWare and others increased their footprint, hired more people, move into bigger office space because they had that support. Incentives, right. Another thing that got cut by the current government, but something that we would bring back.
0: Absolutely. Well, yeah, there was a a record of just investment and and innovation when you guys were in power. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of that kind of has subdued and and went away, but the talk of it coming back, especially with the the tail end of the pandemic, is exciting, right? Yeah. Companies wanted to come invest in Alberta because this is a place that Like you said, people want to start businesses, people want to innovate, people want to, that entrepreneurial spirit, which I've commented on before in other episodes, is really, really, really ingrained here, right? And I think for, if if there's a government that supports that, that backs that, you know, that is, like you said, creating that social safety net so that guys can go out there, guys and girls can go out there and start these companies and really, really implement change on an economic and just community level
1: absolutely it's really important absolutely and it, and, it, and it helps us to capitalize on the economic trends like so if you go out there now you, you will see that there actually has been some significant growth in tech and innovation over the last couple of years and so mm-hmm. current government will point that and see see we didn't need any of that other stuff <laughs> <Fact> <laughs> is, right those other investments got the ball rolling mm-hmm. it created momentum and got things moving yeah and a lot of that got lost for a couple of years there when they sort of cut cut all of it, and then they sort of realized their mistake and started trying to Bring win people back. Mm-hmm. So, And certainly we have seen some growth now. That momentum has been succeeding. Alberta companies are building something. But I'd say in some cases it's despite the government and not because of it. And also just recognizing that Alberta still falls behind a lot of other jurisdictions. So yeah, yeah we've seen growth. But how much bigger could that growth be
0: mm-hmm.
1: Right, if government was actually providing some of these other supports? Yeah. Now,
0: yeah. speaking of economy, there's this false narrative of a failed economy um that the NDP party has no eco- economic plan mm. when in reality you guys' goal is diversification which is you know pretty a pretty safe approach to growth and, mm. and, and, and and stability you know creating jobs in new fields like renewable energy obviously tech uh modified healthcare etc what do you say to those that believe and feed into those narratives uh,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I, I know that's something the conservatives like to try to beat us over the head with whenever they get the opportunity. and But... You know, coming out of our time in government, you know, we put a lot of focus into supporting the economy and diversifying the economy. Uh, Let's be clear, I think we did a lot of work to support and work with the oil and gas industry. They were there at the table with us as we developed the climate leadership plan. They endorsed it. And indeed, you know, they continue to endorse it. Those companies are standing up now and saying we need to take action. We are ready to take action to address, you know, the growing problem of climate change. And of course, you know we work to get the federal government at the table. We got TMX pipeline up and running; construction is going on. That's going to expand our capacity, ability to get our our products to market. So, and we also made some changes in the oil and gas royalties to sort of work with businesses. And part of the reason we are enjoying a thirteen billion dollars surplus right now. Is because of some of what we negotiated in the in that new oil royalty framework. Mm-hmm. So at the point at which companies sort of have paid off their uh, have paid off their capital costs and everything, they start to pay more in terms of their royalties, and that's what we're seeing now. Is a lot of companies have sort of realized that potential. Now they're paying back more on what they're taking out of the ground. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we also looked at diversifying more of the economy because we recognize that oil and gas is going to be with us for a while. Yeah, but you know it's hard to say how long, right? The world is changing pretty rapidly. You don't want to get caught flat-footed. Any good businessman tells you that, right? Mm-hmm. You prepare for the future. Absolutely. So we made a lot of investments. We work with agriculture and agri-food. We expanded some sites across the province where we have that chance to make value-added projects. Mm-hmm. There's a place out near Leduc. We invested in expanding there. We brought in companies like Cavendish Farms down in the Lethbridge area. And they process potatoes, that sort of thing, created a bunch of jobs and opportunity there. So working in that field. Uh, renewable energy, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So That's we, a big one. So we mm-hmm. made investments to support. We supported indigenous communities in sort of building uh, renewable energy projects for, for themselves and their communities. We also uh, worked to increase the provincial support for that. So we had a couple of major auctions for solar power here in the province of Alberta that yielded a huge amount of interest in some of the lowest costs for building uh, solar power that we've seen in North America. Mm-hmm. So incredibly successful, and we are seeing the benefits of that rolling out now. But one of the things we've done is we've continued to work on that. So in our time in opposition, we've uh, done this project called Alberta's Future. If you go to albertasfuture.ca, you'll see we've got a bunch of proposals, policy papers on renewable energy and a bunch of other areas. We've got a a paper up about uh, the hydrogen industry, about geothermal and how we we'll you continue to build on, on solar and wind and some of the others. So we've been doing our homework. We're mm-hmm. not just sort of sitting back <laughs> and criticizing. We're putting ideas out. Another really cool piece on there is something called Beyond Bitumen. So we've got a paper there uh, talking about the fact that about 10 to 15% of every barrel of oil is something called asphaltines. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the leftovers. It's a, it's a stuff that doesn't get used, has to be filtered out, and it costs us more money to transport that oil because we've got to dump a bunch of diluent in to be able to get it to flow through pipelines. So there's the opportunity. For removal and processing, it could add about ten to fifteen dollars per barrel in value,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Make it easier to transport. That would free up about thirty percent of our pipeline capacity. Mm-hmm. And it, so supporting that kind of work, and then hey, it also could reduce emissions by about seventeen percent. So oh. that's win-win-win. Mm-hmm. So we've got a paper up about uh, working on that as well. So you guys are really thought
0: well thought out when it comes to you know oil and gas renewable energy. I think everybody thinks it's in absolutes right mm. it's like one or the other whereas like there's this transition that has to take place where both can coexist together yeah right um a lot of times with with politics and you see um people think everything is an absolute everything has yeah. to be this or this black and white, black and white right and it's not you know, life is not like that politics for sure is not like that right and people always say like if you 100% i always say if you 100% agree with one party's ideals and and beliefs and stuff you might be crazy because (laughs) you know (laughs) there's some crossover in some of that you know so it's very interesting to see to hear you say how you know you guys have helped oil and gas companies with those royalties how you have you're coming to the table and coming up with ideas for these companies so that they can be sustainable as well as start to transition Mm -hmm. right i think that's important how does diversification help improve our economy
1: well i mean it's like think of it like an investment portfolio right you got all your money in one stock. That stock goes bad, you're done.
0: You're cooked, too. Right? Yeah.
1: So you you want to diversify. You want to have a lot of strengths going. So oil and gas has been the strength of the Alberta economy for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It's been a huge benefit, and unfortunately, in some ways, it's been it's been something we've relied on a little too heavily. Yeah, you know, right? We those oil and gas royalties have been powering. Paying for our healthcare, education, and all that. We didn't develop other things. So mm. we've had this thing where the price of oil and gas goes up. Hey, excellent. We can spend more on healthcare and education and public services and roads. And when the price of oil goes down, we are going to cut and slash in mm. all of those areas. And you, you, can't, you can't, can't build a that. business that way. You right. Can. You, you can't not. Really just keep going up and down, up and down. You can't. You got to have stability. You got to have a game plan. You got to have consistency.
0: And that's the word, right?
1: Right. And so that's what a diversified economy helps us do. So we're not subject, then, just to the whims of the price of oil and gas. Mm-hmm. We've got other things going on that help provide opportunity. And the fact is, jobs are going down in oil and gas, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we, we've had record royalties, but we haven't seen the same hiring. Because the hiring in the past has been with developing new oil and gas projects. That's where the biggest work is. Growth, growth, growth. Mm-hmm. And we are reaching a point now where growth in the oil and gas industry and development stalled. Is, is stalled, It may in fact end up trending down as we see the continued changes on the global level. Mm -hmm. So we really need to have other opportunities for folks to draw folks into Alberta that want to live here, that want to work here, that want to support our communities and enrich our communities. And that's part of it too, right? Oil and gas provides a huge economic benefit, and that provides a lot of benefit. But we need a lot of other things in our society (laughs) for it to work and for it to go well. And people want to be able to explore other ideas. So diversification basically gives us a much broader base Mm. of economic stability and opportunity.
0: Absolutely. I mean, diversification is key, right? You can't put all your eggs in
1: one basket.
0: Yeah. You know, I've recently had an injury. I was in the hospital for mm. a little bit. We talked about it earlier. Um, our viewers don't really know. But, um, you know, when I spent that time in the hospital, it was very eye-opening to me um, how much help our healthcare system needs. Mm. Um, in your opinion, I have my own opinions, but what needs to be done here in Alberta to improve our healthcare system?
1: So our healthcare system right now in Alberta is in absolute crisis. Yeah. yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm the I'm the health critic for the Alberta. Absolutely. So I've been watching it pretty closely over the last three years, and there's a couple factors here. Well, first of all, of course, you had the COVID nineteen pandemic. Yep. Yeah. Right. So that has hit uh, folks, hit countries, jurisdictions around the world. It was a incredible test for healthcare systems, put an enormous amount of pressure on them. And so we've seen the impacts of that and it's done damage to healthcare systems around the world, across Canada. Mm-hmm. Here in Alberta in particular, you know, here's one of the challenges we've had with the current government is that they pursue a policy of at many points putting politics ahead of public health. So it was very clear the kinds of decisions they were making around mandates or or other uh, public health orders or other options to help protect people against COVID-19 were more about them wanting to please their political base or their own political ideology than it was about what was being recommended or what was best to protect the majority of Albertans and indeed our healthcare system. So that means we had uh, repeated waves of COVID-19 and those waves were har- worse than they needed to be. So particularly through the uh, through the second wave, third wave, fourth wave, that meant that hospitals were put under incredible pressure. So we've got uh, hospitals where staff who have been working, you know, 100-hour work weeks. Right? You know, for ICU physicians, stuff like that. Not unusual over the last couple of years. And that created enormous pressure that burnt people out, that burned out nurses and others who were also sort of facing that and challenging with that. And so that means now we have less people available to sort of man the beds in the healthcare system. At the same time, we had the government actually fighting with, attacking doctors you know, mm-hmm. going out and attacking them on social media, calling them pr- overprivileged and overpaid and and basically tearing up their contract. So that began to drive some family doctors and others out. We had the government uh, in wage negotiations sort of demanding that nurses take a 5% wage cut in the middle of the fourth wave. <laughs> so, I mean, what kind of mess does that say to you when you're putting in, you know, um, overtime every single day on the front lines of COVID-19 and your government is saying you deserve 5% less? Mm-mm. Now, those were negotiated differently, but that does damage. So, we have a healthcare system that was pushed to the limits, healthcare workers that feel undervalued and disrespected. And post COVID 19, we've got a lot of folks now who we've got a lot of deferred care, we've got delayed surgeries, all of which was made worse by a lot of the decisions. So, our healthcare system is under incredible pressure. We don't have enough staff to be able to maintain the infrastructure. So that means we've got ERs that unfortunately have massive wait times, ERs in rural areas that are in fact closed. Over 30 healthcare facilities across the province right now where, uh, where ERs or other healthcare services are closed, obstetrics, communities where women cannot give birth in their community, they have to drive hundreds of kilometers because we do not have the anesthesiologists or doctors or nurses to support. So we have a lot of work to do to recover from this. And so you were telling me about your own experience. You're, you're there in the hospital on an air mattress. Yeah. Yeah, because there are not enough beds. actual beds available because, in part, some of those beds are occupied by people that should be in continuing care. Yeah. But they can't get into those facilities because there's not enough staff or there's been outbreaks or there's been other things. So it's a disruption across the whole system. And unfortunately, what we have is a government that is completely undermined it. That has broken trust and faith with healthcare workers, and frankly, is trying to push an agenda of a lot more private profit in the midst of the healthcare system. Premier Kenny himself just said it the other day. You know, and sort of as he's sort of talking about uh, as he's on his way out the door. Yeah, I really wish I'd have been able to get in more privatization in healthcare. <laughs> wow. So, what do we need to do? I mean, okay, I've laid out the problem. <laughs> what do we need to do? We need to rebuild trust yep. first of all. I, I don't know that this government can do it. I mean, of course, hey, okay, I'm the opposition. That's my job to say it. <laughs> Fr- frankly, once uh, you get to a certain point where you've burnt so much trust, I don't know that it can be rebuilt. Be built, yeah. so, and we need stability back in the system. So we need government to stop undermining, stop trying to force through change that, changes that are undermining the system and creating more chaos. Like They fired the head of Alberta Health Services earlier this year. That, yeah, yeah. Right? As we're trying to recover stability, a woman, Dr. Verna Yu, who was immensely respected, mm-hmm. So what does that tell healthcare workers? What does it tell all the other people in the system, right? So we need to get stability back. We need to get back working collaboratively with our frontline healthcare workers to stabilize. We need to get more work healthcare workers in the system. So that means opening up spots in education. That means creating some creating a system that attracts people from other provinces doesn't drive them out of Alberta okay. to other provinces. Yeah. And certainly we need to address some of the systemic issues. So part of that is in primary care. Tens of thousands of Albertans don't have a family doctor. Yeah, So that means then that they are not getting help with managing chronic diseases. We are not catching things earlier. That means that drives them into emergency rooms to seek care. That means that when they get there, they are in worse shape, and that puts more pressure on our system. So we need to fix the problems in primary care.
0: From top to bottom, right?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And so work on that system. Make sure that people can get care in the community when they need it. And we have to address the problem. I didn't even talk about ambulances and EMS, (laughs) right, which is a whole other thing, massive Mm -hmm. wait times for an ambulance, uh, paramedics that are exhausted, you know, and we need to support that system. We need more paramedics. We need to find ways we can work collaboratively with communities, whereas the government has kind of been undermining them and pulling their resources away. We need to find ways that we can keep resources in communities to be able to help meet those needs. But ultimately what it takes is it, it takes a governmental approach that isn't about being antagonistic. No. It isn't about picking fights. It's about sitting down and saying, how can we can work
0: together? And trust, right? Yeah. So uh, as a community here in Edmonton, you know, how can we do our part to help with homelessness? You know, I think it's a big issue. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I think it's a big issue across the country, not just Edmonton. Yeah. But um, locally, you know, what can we do to kind of contribute to that fight?
1: Absolutely. It is a huge challenge. The number of folks without housing pretty much doubled over the course of the pandemic. So it's one of those frustrations, you know, I think in, in around downtown Edmonton, we were seeing a lot of momentum building, you know, economically, we were seeing some success. Let's be clear, you know, in the last decade, we have housed a lot of people. We've been able to support a lot of people. But we the pandemic set us back in a lot of ways. Uh, we have the drug poisoning crisis and other things that have made things worse. So we are dealing with a real challenge right now. So, But it, it is a wicked problem. It has been with us for a very long time and it's complex. So how do you solve a problem like houselessness? Well, there's two things, really. You stop more people from falling into it, mm-hmm. and you build a better system to get people out of it. So if you want to stop people from falling into it, from losing housing and ending up on the street, well, that's things like better social support. So things like, you know, we in government created the Alberta Child Benefit that combined with the federal child benefit cut child poverty in Alberta by 50%. Cut it in half. Oh, that's crazy.
0: That's amazing. Right? And that's
1: in the course of four years. Mm -hmm. And that means all of those families are a lot more resilient, a lot more stable able to get by. Uh, Unfortunately, we've seen some loss of some of the ground on that, some of the decisions that have been made by the current government. But still, that's one of the key parts. Uh, Things like childcare, we talked about that $25 a day, we tried to bring that in specifically to help lower income families. uh, And that makes a big difference there too, right? Helps provide economic stability. And then frankly, affordable housing, right? We had put about a billion committed in over about the course of five or six years to upgrade and increase the stock of affordable housing for folks. Mm-hmm. So that when they're when they're trying to get a leg up, trying to get economic stability, trying to get some savings in the bank to be able to afford their own home, they've got a good place, quality, dignity where they can stay that helps people from falling into being houseless. <laughs> how do we keep people how do we help people get out? You gotta create a pathway. Yeah. So the thing is, for a lot of folks who were sort of houseless simply due to economic instability and economic problems, we've been able to help a lot of those folks over the last decade. And so what we really have right now is a core group of folks who what they talk about is being sort of chronically houseless. So these are folks who are struggling with their mental health. These are folks who are struggling with substance use, and a lot of it is rooted in very deep trauma. So for a lot of the a lot of our indigenous, a lot of the, pardon me, or ours, a very bad word to use. I apologize. The indigenous community, mm-hmm. right, that are that are living houseless on the streets. Very deep-seated trauma from the residential school system and a lot of other yeah. other uh, systemic racism in our yeah. society. And
0: we need to acknowledge that, right? Reconciliation. Yeah. And, and so
1: that means for those individuals, right, you need to have very Accessible entry points mm-hmm. for them to, you have to start by building trust and relationships these are folks who do not feel that they trust systems and authorities and for good reason yeah absolutely right? so we need that happens by building relationship connection to, for that we need a better shelter system so right now, there's a lot of folks who do not feel comfortable going to these sort of mats on the floor kinds of shelters that we've got offered. by a lot of folks right now they mm-hmm. don't feel comfortable with some of the religious aspects of the programming. Uh, they don't feel comfortable because of their uh, because they're a member of the 2s LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't feel comfortable uh, because they don't they're not allo- they're not allowed in if they've been using substances or yeah. they're not allowed to come in with their partner or their pet or there's a lack of safety or privacy. So we need to have better shelters available. That includes so some of the models we saw during the pandemic. We had federal funding to buy out some old hotels, giving people a private room. Mm-hmm. Which Just is the everything. The difference right? that makes for them Absolutely. to have a door they can close. Mm-hmm. Right? Those connections. And then other connection points for folks, too. Harm reduction, supervised consumption sites. Right? So people who are living rough will come in to have support at a supervised consumption site. That starts a relationship. You get to know them. They start to trust someone. All of a sudden, you can introduce them maybe to some other supports, other services. There's a great program at the Royal Alex Hospital that does that, The, Mm -hmm. uh, the ARCH team. So people come in, they present there at the emergency room, but then they're able to connect them with other supports and services, help move them into housing. So we also then need to have the housing bridge. So that's the first step, introduction, build trust with that ship, get them in the door. Then you need to move them sec- the next step down the road. That's transitional housing. That's a space where they can get, where they can come down, right? yeah. where they can drop the fight or flight, where they can get comfortable and begin to build towards stability and build trust. So we've had things at the Coliseum Inn and other spaces, again, these hotels that were bought with federal dollars by the city of Edmonton. Some of those have been lost. We've unfortunately lost some of the support and funding from the provincial government, but that's essential. And. From that, then moving into supportive housing. So the city of Edmonton has built 260 units Mm -hmm. of supportive housing. That's basically permanent supportive housing. So people move in, that is their home, and they also then have wraparound support. So health workers, social workers, others help keep them stable, access to medication, access to supports for their mental health, to help them with substance use, help them find stability again. Now, the challenge is, of course, that the federal government provided dollars. The city stepped up, provided dollars, land, and built it. The provincial government is refusing to provide any of the funding for the supportive services. Let's be clear. Health care is a provincial responsibility, so is housing, for Absolutely. So we need the provincial government to come to the table and provide that. And then, essentially, from that, you know, giving people other opportunities. So folks like Boyle Street Community Services, for example, offers work programs mm-hmm. for folks. And so zero commi- low commitment, get paid cash daily you show up you work you get an opportunity but again that's building relationship that's building stability that's giving people a sense of Mm self-worth so they have a they have a moving company they have a food truck they have other things that sort of help folks get employed get in a routine build self-worth help them build back towards stability we need to be supporting more of that
0: step by step right absolutely so let me ask you this you know it's obvious we're both black right yeah and that affects the way we do our jobs straight like that you know some people can gloss over it it can go over some people's heads being a black man in a field of politics it, it must come with its own set of lived experiences on its own that can affect you know your lens and and has an impact on the way you see the world maybe you could speak on you know some of the barriers that you've had to come overcome as a black man and how they may have shaped your lens on society today
1: sure you know, I've, I've been pretty open about the fact that I think I've had a very different lived experience mm-hmm. than probably many other people that look like me. Uh, you know, I, I grew up here in Edmonton. and grew up in the White Evangelical Church. You know, I did not grow up in black communities or around many other black folks. I certainly had no real connection to, to black culture. My father came from Trinidad, but, you know, for him, when he uh, converted to Christianity, that meant, you know, giving up a lot of that. So... I learned to behave and talk in a way that most people don't find particularly different, mm-hmm. right? I learned how to present in a way that uh, people don't find unusual or offensive. So I can't look at it back on a lot of points in my life and sort of say, yeah, you know, I think the fact that I was black held me back here. Mm -hmm. And I mean, but hey, let's be clear, I also lived with a lot of social anxiety, a lot of other stuff. So I was a pretty reserved and shy guy in a lot of respects, as hard as that may be now. (laughs) But uh, so, you know, it was I I didn't really have that sense of it. I didn't really even when I ran for office in 2015, I never once had the thought that, oh, yeah, I'm running as a black candidate. Mm -hmm, It -hmm. just simply did not occur to me. But, you know, around 2012, with the with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, when folks were talking about Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. Tamir Rice, I started to recognize and started that, okay, there's a whole lot of black people living out there who have a very different experience of the world and life than me. So I started following on social media, black journalists, black activists, advocates, just trying to educate myself and learn more about that experience and recognize. And when I was elected in 2015, you know, uh, I got invited, one of the first events I got invited to, I think it was a gala with the Africa Center. Mm -hmm. And I I walked in that room and just the people coming up to me and just all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute this really means something to these folks to see someone that looks like them in a position like mine. I discovered I was only the third black person ever elected to the Alberta legislature. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I I made a real commitment. I said, okay, this is going to be one of the things I'm going to focus on. I will never say no to an event, you know, that's brought to me from the black community, and I'm going to make a point of of building these connections, these relationships, and and learning. So through that, I've had the opportunity to learn a lot, sit down and listen to hear people's stories, you know, we, I sat down with my dad, you know, because Black History Month 2016, I'd never gone to a Black History Month event before, and I was being asked to speak, (laughs) I'm like, what What do I say, so I sat down with my dad, and said, what was your experience when you came here to Hamilton? what did you go through, and he told me about some of that, and frankly, he faced some discrimination, housing, other things, you know, And I started doing my research and learning a bit more about black history in Alberta. I started having the chance to connect with folks who've been maintaining those stories and that history for for decades, right? You know, the, the generations that have come through and learn what those experiences are. And all that to come to the point to say like, hey, yeah, I know that is absolutely a reality. I hear it from folks every day. You know, in the political sphere, absolutely. You know, my colleagues, uh, my, uh, the women in our caucus, and frankly, in in, on, in all caucuses, the experiences that they have trying to work in politics, the discrimination and hate that they face, and then people of color, women of color, absolutely. it's it's It can be a brutal, brutal atmosphere. I'll be honest, I've had very little racism overtly directed at me, you know, as a black man. Mm-hmm. but certainly I have colleagues who I know have seen a lot more. I know my, uh, my, my friend, my brother, Ahmed Nomadic, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. ran for city council. Yeah. You know, And I, I saw some of it when I was out there with him on the doors, and I sort of heard his stories about, about what he encountered. So there are very real challenges and issues we got to continue to address. So for me, it's, I sort of look at it, okay, I've, I have a position of a lot of privilege, right? I've been given a platform, I've been given a voice. So trying to find ways that I can continue to bring these stories forward, whether that's with the Anti-Racism Act, whether that's with some of the commitments we've been able to, I've been able to work with our our caucus to build for when we get into government. I mean, we had some commitments before we did an anti-racism plan, we worked on trying to build diversity in the public service and our appointments to agencies, boards and commissions, but it goes so much deeper. It's deep, yeah. It goes very deep. So, you know, I, I try to sort of hold myself to account you know, to, to question my own motives and the ways I do things and sort of to make sure, you know, I'm listening legitimately because when we have, you know, black hijabi women, you know, being attacked on the streets in Edmonton, mm-hmm. you know, when we see, you know, Confederate flags and things still being flown across Alberta, when we see these rising voices of hate, mm-hmm. you know, we, we know there is more work that we have to do.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just being conscious of it, you know. It starts with that, you know, once you're, oh... This is what's going on. Oh, let me yeah. talk to this person. Oh, you're hearing these lived experiences. You know, it's like you're a sponge and you're able to help and, and move the needle forward by community, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's commu- Consciousness, community, all that comes together and then that's how you that's how you move the needle. That's yeah. how you make change.
1: And a lot of it is just presence and building trust. Absolutely. So the number of times in the first few years I had them say, well, we've never had an MLA show up here before. Well, wow. You know, with black communities. Wow. And it's like... I'm I'm glad to say that's shifting. I'm seeing Mm -hmm. that with all political parties, all sides. And, hey, I've got a lot of colleagues in our caucus right now who are are doing that work and getting out and being present now, too. But that's it takes time. Like we were talking about earlier, people distrust the political system. And they distrust it for good reason. Mm -hmm. Because it's hurt them in many ways in the past. It's a system that was built to exclude them. And it's a system that, in many many cases, will exploit them. Absolutely. Right? Politicians are not afraid to exploit cultural communities for votes. Uh Make big promises... And then not deliver, mm-hmm. so that's certainly it's, it's it's a challenge for me to try to co- find how we come at this authentically, be able to do real things, and not make commitments we can't follow through on. Because again, we talked about this stuff is complex; it's not all black and
0: white. No, it's not. Yeah. But you got but, a com- you got a community yeah. behind you, right? You got yeah. people behind you, and you know everybody wants to see change, and everybody's willing to chip in, and you know you're that voice, right? And it starts with you, right? Last thing, you mm-hmm. know. Let's talk about you know, some of the things the party has done to, to better lives of so people in Edmonton, people in Alberta. Um, and How do you guys plan to build on this uh, momentum when you're reelected? Right.
1: Well, some of the things specifically that we did here in Edmonton that you know I sort of saw myself, uh, we build a lot of schools. <laughs> so we were way behind, right? You mm-hmm. know, again, when you have a government that runs on oil royalties and kind of spend when the money's in and cut when the money's out, you don't have a consistent investment in infrastructure, and we haven't for years. It mm-hmm. goes all the way back to Ralph Klein and deep cuts that were made back then. We've been trying to catch up ever since. So we invested in building schools, and I know uh, one, uh, one announcement in particular I was really happy to get to be at was for a school called École de la Decouverte, mm-hmm. and they were operating out of Queen Mary Park in my area, oh. but uh, largely black francophone school. You know, a lot of new Canadians from the Francophone community, a lot of them black students. And so, yeah sort of making the commitment to build them a new school that opened up just a couple of years ago. Congratulations. Right? Yeah. So building that kind of infrastructure, those investments, uh, making commitments like building the, a hospital in South Edmonton where we are seeing enormous pressure at the Gray Nuns mm-hmm. and the Misericordia. You know, we got that ball rolling, started the process. It's kind of, new government's it's kind of dragging it. their feet a bit, but we're, you know, it's, it's going to happen. It's mm-hmm. going to get there. Uh, making some upgrades to the Misericordia Hospital as well. We invested in mental health. Right. So there's we invested in six new mental health beds at the Royal Outlook Hospital. We uh, put investment into support uh, something called Access 24-7, which is sort of a walk in mental health support Hmm. clinic at the Royal Outlook Hospital just outside. And I think Robinson Hall. Right. So trying to increase and open that model to make it easier for people to access when they need it. Of course, we did things like uh, capping tuition. Right. Mm-hmm. So for post-secondary students. So it had been, you know, sort of going up in Alberta was sort of out of line in many respects with other provinces with the way tuition was going. So we put a cap on it and we connected it to the actual inflation, the cost of living. Nice. So to provide better access for post-secondary students. We also, you know, affordability is big right now. Yeah. Cost of living is huge. Mm-hmm. Everybody's sort of seeing inflation at the grocery store. Uh, auto insurance is up. Yeah. Utility bills are way up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When we were in government. We capped auto insurance. We said, okay, you get a 5% increase, and if you want more than that, show us. Bring us the reports, bring us the numbers, and we can talk. UCP, they remove that. Auto insurance. Through the roof. We had a cap on utility rates, and of course, that was, you know, so working to try to keep things more affordable. We were seeing jobs being built, and like I talked about that in tech and the innovation. I saw many of them being created right in my constituency. We saw that moving forward. One of the biggest things is we brought stability to the healthcare system. That's not just me saying it. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of political pundits were saying it at the time, you know, both during our time in office and after. You know, again, with that roller coaster of funding, you can't plan. Consistently. You can't build a stable system when you don't know what your funding is going to be from one year to the next. So we tried to control the growth. We put a cap on how much each year, but we funded for population growth Mm -hmm. and inflation every single year. And that got us to a point where we were starting to get the stability and starting to build the systems that's kind of been blown up now by the pandemic and some of the other government decisions. But we were working on that. And we were working on a new curriculum. Right? updating that so we put a lot of work into that huge amount it's of time. consultation with Alberta families individuals teachers educational experts unfortunately the current government politicized that heavily mm-hmm. and now is brought up what frankly is it's I don't think it's biased to say an embarrassment. Of a curriculum, is pretty universally yeah, recognized that it. it's deeply, deeply problematic. And it's kind of rolled that back. And again, it's one of those things where you're building stability, you're building a more attractive environment, and now it's sort of blown up, you have more chaos. Yeah. So, I mean, those are a few of the things that we were we were working on. And so, sort of, of course, like I was talking about with some of the work on diversifying the economy in some of these new sectors.
0: Yeah, well, you're working every day, you know, and we're grateful for it, you know. Hopefully, we're here to see the change, right? Elections are coming up, you know, and they, big shift coming, <laughs> you know. Any other last words you want to give to our viewers uh, here at the Gifted Gap, viewers, listeners?
1: You know, what I what I would say is I really want to encourage all of your listeners to get more involved and get more engaged. Yeah. You know, I get it. Things are pretty crazy out there. It is chaotic. And it's it's pretty tempting to just want to tune out from a lot of what is happening because there is a lot of toxicity there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of division. Mm-hmm. But you know, there are people that are intentionally creating that toxicity, yeah. creating that division because they want to drive you out. Because the less everyday people that engage in these systems, mm-hmm. the more the radicals, the extremists, the folks who just want to wield power, get to have control. Yeah, 100%. So we need more folks from our communities to be engaged, to be involved, pay attention. to participate. And this next election is going to be crucial here in the province of Alberta for deciding the direction we go. Any, anyway, whatever your political stripe is, you know, whoever forms the next government, we are at a crucial time for our economy, for our healthcare system, for so many things that's gonna determine what Alberta is gonna look like for decades to come. And there is room for people to be part of it. So anyone wants to reach out to me, I'm always happy to talk to them. I'm always happy to connect. Look for the ways to engage, get involved, and stay talk informed. to the people who want to make a difference
0: and stay informed right Stay yeah. informed. Mr. David Shepard appreciate you thank you so nice. much for coming it's been a pleasure to have you guys give the gab you guys know what it is David Shepard here stay tuned stay informed and, and don't tune out pay attention and just like that we're gone